0: I had somebody who will go unnamed right before the service look at the text that we're preaching on and say, "Oh, you got a you got a good one there." <laughs> uh, we're in First Peter chapter three. If you're new with us or just kind of dropping in, haven't been paying attention to the to the series, I want you to know that's all okay. But we are coming to this text because we're making our way through this letter that that Peter wrote. And so as we get into it, I think it's important to just discuss with you a little bit like. How did Peter set uh, set the board a little bit for us to receive this wisdom that he gives us? As he's talking about husbands and wives, um, he uh, he begins by calling us uh, elect exiles of the dispersion. He is calling us the new Israel, God's people scattered throughout the world. It's this fundamental reality of who we are that we're living in a foreign world that we may or may not understand, that may or may not understand us, but we are God's royal priesthood. Priests were the people that stood in the gap between God and man and worked to pull those two closer together. And so even though we're this people living in exile in the world, we live with hope for the redemption of the world, And so what that means is that all of our work, all of our relationships, including our marriages, all of our conduct in the world, is supposed to serve those around us by helping them see Jesus. That is who we are. And last week we talked about how we help people see Jesus in our relationships with our earthly authorities. And today we're talking about how we help people see Jesus in our marriage relationships. And I, I feel the need to uh, just point one other thing out as we get into this, and that's just to acknowledge the, the variety of experiences we have as we come to this text just in this room alone. I mean, some of us are hearing this text after years, decades even, of marriage. And some of us are relatively young in our marriage. Uh, we have people here that aren't married and would very much like to be. Uh, we have people in here that aren't married and are totally okay with that. Uh, we all come, we all, some of us are children that are looking at our parents' marriage and we're learning from it. We all come to this topic from a variety of different places, uh, but we do look at it with a lot of interest. And uh, I mention all that because it can be tempting to look at these seven verses and uh, and think of it like it's one of those Christian marriage manuals that we come across, you know. That's not what this is. This is not a Christian marriage manual. If it were, it would be a lot longer than seven verses, and it would answer a lot more of our questions. But remember, what Peter writes here in this letter, he is writing a pilgrim manual. He's writing something that's meant to give us wisdom about what it looks like as God's people to labor and walk through this world in a way that honors him. And so he's looking to guide us in wisdom as we make our way through a foreign world. And right here he's speaking to us about how that reality might affect how we love each other as husbands and wives. And so with that, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, you know who we are and you know what we need to hear. So I pray you would give me the grace and um, the joy of, uh, of serving your people now, of serving them with whatever it is that you have for us. I pray, Father, you would strengthen me uh, to, to love them well, to speak in fidelity with what you give us, to honor you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in our very hearts in this moment, that you would give us uh, the ability to hear well, to listen, uh, to hear correction, to hear encouragement, all of these things. I ask that you would be at work in this room right now, in my own heart and in my friends' hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were a citizen in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, that would be the original audience that received this letter. And you were a member of a household, you would have grown up uh, learning that you lived according to a code. And you would have taken this code very, very seriously. Both Greek philosophy and Roman custom paid a lot of attention to this and even popularized the use of household codes. And uh, those codes were used to kind of set the expectation for what the ideal marriage, the ideal household, and the ideal marriage. Uh, would look like. And over, so over the past week, I looked at some of these codes. Uh, I just kind of dove in to take a look, and I learned a couple of things. The first thing I learned is that the Greeks have the best names, like just awesome names, like Xenophon, and Philo, and, uh, and Plutarch, Aristotle, another one of those great names. But these were all Greek moralists and philosophers that wrote a lot about this. And the other thing I learned is that there was like, there are some differences between, you know, who was writing, but there was kind of a a widespread agreement for the most part on what the ideal marriage might look like. And uh, so here's an example. This one's from Plutarch. Let me read this to you. Plutarch says that control ought to be exercised by the men over the women. Not as, owner, not as the owner has control over a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through goodwill. And I give that to you because that just gives you a sense for kind of like what the, you know, what the landing pad looked like as Peter is sending this, this alternative household code to them about how they're to understand marriage. But as we approach this text, we come to it from, from a much different place. Do we not? Like our understanding of what a healthy marriage might look like, our understanding of the household is different, our understanding of who women and men are are different. Women and men interact with each other much differently in our world than the world that we live in. And so I think it'd be reasonable to ask this question. If we don't live in that world, and if we don't share all of the concerns of that world, then why is it important to hear this alternative household code that Peter lays out for us in this passage? Like the concepts of male headship and submissive wives can feel like they belong in a completely different era. Well, here's my short answer to what I think is actually a very complex question. The quality of our relationships are one of the most important ways that we show Jesus to the world. Our friendships with each other, how we work together, and yes, what our marriages look like all portray an image of Jesus to the world around us. They do. And each of the responsibilities that Peter outlines for us are itself a demonstration for us about who Jesus is. And so not not only, I mean, not only is this God's word that's given to us, but when we become a husband... Or when we become a wife, we're adopting another responsibility that's given to us about how we show Jesus to the world. And that's really the way I want to go about looking at this text is how do we see, uh, or how do we see Jesus in the role of the husband as Peter lays it out and the role of the wife as Peter lays it out for us? How do we see Jesus in these different places? Okay, I'm going to start with the husband and then I'm going to talk about the wife. okay. First, when Peter talks to husbands, this is in verse 7. Uh, I'm looking at verse 7 here. When Peter talks to husbands, he's paying really special attention to how husbands treat their wives. Uh, he tells us we should treat them with understanding, as those worthy of honor, and as co-heirs in grace. Understanding, worthy of honor, co-heirs in grace. Uh, the first call is the hus- to, of the husband is the one of understanding. He begins by telling us, To live with your wives in an understanding way. And so what he's talking about is what we see when we look at our wives. Uh, We're to come to them with a desire to understand them. That might be a good way of kind of understanding that phrase. And this means paying special attention to who they are. This means coming, coming to understand just how God wired them in a unique way. And understanding the way they tick. Understanding the way that they think in the way that they perceive the world or whatever challenge it is that you're facing together. Uh, Our primary concern as husbands uh, is not to come to our wives and convince them of whatever we're thinking, okay? Our Our job is to come to them in an understanding way, looking to understand whatever it is that is on their mind or how they're thinking or feeling. We're to understand them. And we're to understand them as those worthy of honor, as the weaker vessel. Now, some of you, I heard an audible gasp when I, uh, when I read that phrase. What in the world does that mean, uh, weaker vessel? Uh, let me say what it doesn't mean. Weaker vessel does not mean weak-minded. Uh, it doesn't mean less gifted. It doesn't mean less intelligent. It doesn't mean less c- courageous or weak-willed. Scholars differ on uh, what that phrase actually means, but they generally agree it doesn 't mean any of those things. Um, some believe this is a reference to physical strength, and I think there 's an argument to be made there but uh, but i 'll tell you i can 't chase that one down to i don 't want to go too far with that because as someone who is had the flu at the very same time as my wife, then I think that there are like remarkable differences in how we both uh, stewarded that gift of the flu at the same time. Uh, When I had the flu, I was incapacitated completely. Like you found me in one of two places. You found me either in the bed or on the couch and always with my laptop because Netflix is not going to watch itself, right? And, And if you came up to talk to me, then I'm... Complaining and misery and self-pity and I'm incapable of anything. And uh, when Shonda was sick, I'm not sure what changed. Like, I could tell she was sick, but like everything is still, like she's still moving around. And I'm like, why don't you, why don't you just lay down for a while? And she says, the laundry is not going to do itself. I mean, that's that's the way that she understood it. Weaker. Weaker, uh, weaker status in society might actually be a better way of understanding this phrase. Weaker status in society. Um, and that would certainly square with what we know about the lives and the challenges that women face, particularly in, in antiquity. Uh, and if that's the case, then I think what we're hearing here is that no matter how the world understands women in general no matter how the world understands women in general or our wives in particular, we're to understand them as one who is worthy of our deepest honor as husbands to our wives. That whatever strength we might have is to be used in the service of her honor. And this is because women are no less than men in God's eyes. Peter says that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That men and women are co-heirs of the privileges of the gospel. So even if, if we're given different roles, we have the same status in God's eyes. Both are made in the image of God and both share equally in the gifts that God gives. Now if all this is true then I think this tells us that as Christian husbands, we're to approach our wives with just a great deal of humility. That her words must matter to us. Her words, her wisdom, her thinking must be implicitly valuable to us. And I don't know how you measure humility, but one of the ways I like to think about it is just the willingness to listen. Listen. A penetrating, if not courageous, question you might ask. Maybe later today, maybe if you have kids and you're on your way home from church, maybe don't ask this in front of the children. But ask her, do you feel heard by me? Husbands, ask that question. Do you feel heard by me? That's another way of just asking, do you feel valued by me? we're to live with our wives in an understanding way do you feel understood by me and if this is going and this is going to be important because if people are going to see Jesus in the way that we treat our wives that's that's critical i think you see elements of this in this passage you certainly see it in ephesians 5 colossians 3 but the call of the husband is to love our wives as Jesus Christ loves the church. And how did Jesus love the church? That he gave himself for her good. That he sacrificed himself for her good. And so the functioning paradigm that Christians are to have when we think about our marriage to our wives is one of sacrifice. Of one one where we're able to lay everything down In order to seek her good. And I would propose. That this version of leadership. Or headship. The idea of sacrifice. And serving. Is the only way. That we could begin to understand. What Peter is talking about in this passage. Which is why I started with talking about the husband. Kathy Keller. Somebody who talked. I owe a lot to her. i read a good bit from her over this past week. She, she is a, a fantastically intelligent and Winston speaker and writer on these things. But she said that Jesus talks to his disciples about who is the greatest, and the greatest is always the servant. And it becomes a lot easier to think about submission when we're talking about a man who's willing to die for me. Now look, I know this doesn't answer all the questions we have about this text. I do. But it at least is a start as we begin to try and explore and apply what Peter is talking about in this passage. A few roles about, uh, or a few words about this word submission that we see in this passage as we talk about the role of the wife. Uh, this isn't the first time that we've seen that phrase, be subject. In fact, this is the, um, the third of three sections of scripture where uh, Peter is calling Christians to be subject to something as we order our lives together. So we know that, that this concept of submission is not an invitation to dominate. Okay? Submission is actually a, bl- a milder word than obedience. It doesn't mean blind obedience uh, it's certainly um, not uh, permission to. Uh, it's certainly not permission to take a, advantage of those things. Is not okay. But if it doesn't mean those things, then what does it mean? I mean, that's the question. And what what stands out to me about this passage is that Peter doesn't give us a lot of detail about this. Um, Karen Jobs is a scholar who worked on this passage. And she gave me a lot of help on this, but she. She says be very, very careful in over-applying this passage. Because if Peter doesn't give us specifics in how to interpret this role, then, then maybe we shouldn't either. This is what she says. Peter is not spelling out in specific terms what this looks like. The apostle laid down the principles and then left the details to be worked out between the spouses. And so, it's, so while it's definitely something that, that, uh, that married couples should talk about and, and work through, premarital counseling is a good time to do that, or counseling, or just sitting with your community groups and talking about it, or sitting with close friends and talking about it, um, she goes further to say, if the submission of the wife is a central issue, the image of a Christian marriage has already been distorted. Now, I, I got to say I agree with her because I don't, what I don't think that Peter is giving for us is like a checklist of what submission and leadership actually looks like. Uh, and I think that if that's the case, if we're interpreting it that way, that we've really missed the point of what Peter's saying. But the question then becomes, then what is the central image of Christian marriage that's given to us in this passage? Well, I, I want to give you two. The first one Peter gives to us in this passage, he, he, uh, he doesn't leave us without guidance. He, he says, look at verse 6. He gives us the example of Sarah, which is Abraham's wife. Now, Sarah and Abraham married to each other, were given a shared call by God to go out into the world that all the families of the earth would know God's blessing for them. And as they lived out this call together, we do see stories where Sarah willfully submitted to Abraham's um, will. And we also see stories, three of them in particular, where Abraham uh, listened to Sarah and obeyed her advice. And in fact, I would say That the time when we see Sarah in most danger is also the time when Abraham, because of fear, was unwilling to sacrifice himself for her. And so while their marriage wasn't perfect, no marriage to the sign of heaven is, I think what we see when we look at their relationship is a picture of a mutual partnership. It's the image that's given to us in them. That's Peter's example, but let me give you another one. And I'm giving this to you because it meant a lot to me. Some of you have heard the name Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin. If you have, just uh, nod your head. Anybody? No? Okay. Oh, this is fun. Uh, Thanks for nodding no. That helped. (laughs) Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin, they served together, Christians. They served overseas as missionaries for a long time. And eventually they moved back to the States uh, both Robertson and Muriel were fantastic teachers of the Bible. Muriel had her own radio show, really effective communicator. Robertson was a teacher. Robertson is his first name, okay? But Robertson was a teacher at Columbia Bible College. That's now Columbia International University. And uh, and nobody was surprised when Robertson later became appointed president of uh, of Columbia Bible College. He was just this wonderful man. Um, and Muriel was excited for him. She was right by his side through the whole way. What did come as a surprise was years later and they realized that Muriel had Alzheimer's and, uh, and she was declining and Robertson knew that he needed to uh, make a decision. Either he was going to commit her to an institution or he was going to resign. And he says for him, it wasn't really a choice. He resigned and committed the rest of his life to serving her. And the most moving thing, you can read all about this if you want to look it up, but the most moving thing is listening to his resignation speech. He said that I vowed in sickness and in health till death do us part. But that's not all. He said, It's only fair that I go. Muriel, his voice began to crack. And he said, Muriel has served me for 40 years to make this life possible. And if I could serve her for 40 years more, I would still be in her debt. So I think one of the most life giving, healthy examples of what Christian marriage looks like is one where we're just yearning to outserve each other. Where their good is so much more important to us than our own, and so whatever we think about in terms of leadership and submission, and I do, would say that those are those are principles that God gives us to work out together as Christian husbands and wives. We're to think about them in the terms of what it looks like to outserve each other. So, husbands, what is it going to look like? To outserve your wife, and and wives, what is it going to look like to outserve your husband? That's Christian marriage. But what about when you have a Christian woman who's married to a non-Christian husband? That is certainly in view in this text. It was well known in the early church that many uh, Christian women were quicker to see the truth of the gospel than men were. I know, shocker. But it led to all kinds of questions, right? Like, should I remain married to this non-Christian man or what should, this, what should this marriage look like? That's certainly what Peter is looking at when he says, no, you should remain with them so that they, your husband, might be won without a word by the conduct of your wives. He's saying that your character around them is the most persuasive thing when it comes to your husband. And, and he's still talking about this when he goes on to talking, when he goes on to begin talking about personal beauty, he says, "Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit." Now, look, that, that is not to say that we shouldn't be longing to be beautiful or taking care of ourselves in that our way, but Peter's culture, just like ours, was obsessed with the idea of personal beauty, and this is anecdotal. But I'll tell you that shortly before we as a family, we moved down to Birmingham, two women who were friends of mine pulled me aside. They grew up in Birmingham. They love this city. But they said, "When you go down there, you need to protect your wife." I was like, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "The pressure we feel every day to go outside and look perfect can be almost overwhelming. What Peter is talking about is that your inner beauty, your character, which is precious in God's eyes, is powerful to persuade those who don't believe of who Jesus is. And that is the story, that is a story, there's a story of that we actually see in Augustine's confessions. Augustine, one of his most wonderful works is the confessions, and he puts a story in there about his mother, her name was Monica. Monica. Monica was married to uh, his father, who was not a Christian, and listen to how Augustine describes his mother's beauty in this passage. This is late fourth century, okay? He says, she served her husband and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you, you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. She gained, she gained him for you. What persuaded this man? The hidden person of the heart, which was already precious in God's eyes, became precious in her husband's eyes. That word precious is the same word that Peter uses in chapter 2 to describe Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was the one who was gentle and lowly in heart. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus had no form or majesty or beauty that we should desire him, but he was precious in God's eyes. And I want you to hear, you are too. Precious in God's eyes. Because external adornment matters so much less than internal adornment. And God is giving us the internal adornment of His love when we come to Him. Because you know what image that God uses the most in the Bible to describe our relationship with Jesus? is one of a marriage. And one of the most beautiful pictures that we see of this is found right there in Revelation 21. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the picture that we have to describe that joyful moment when heaven and earth are moving together, and what we know by faith, we will see by sight. When the new Israel, these elect exiles, will be with Jesus again, the passage tells us that we come as a bride adorned for her husband. And so even as we are all growing older and the beauty of our youth fades away, in God's eyes, you are actually becoming more beautiful as he builds you in faith and in love for him. You know, one of the most wonderful ways that Shonda teaches me the gospel? She has seen me at my worst in ways you might not be able to fathom. I could give you stories, but I don't want to. You're free to ask. I may tell you, I may not. And yet she is still willing to draw near to me that she's teaching me the love of God through the gospel is actually real embodied just in our relationship. Because what is marriage if not this, these two people who are knowing each other as much as they possibly could know each other and yet still drawing near to each other in love? And if that's not a picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. That is exactly what God says to us in Jesus that in Jesus we are both fully known. And fully loved. And if I were to stop there, that would be enough. But also, you know one of the most exciting things about growing old together as husbands and wives is is when we're able to look at each other and talk about the ways we see God at work in each other's hearts over time. That we have this unique perspective we're able to give to each other. We knew who each other were 10 years ago. We know who each other are now. And we are watching each other as God clothes us with this internal adornment, making us more like Jesus. Ways that we are reminding each other that just as we haven't given up on each other yet and are still willing to draw near to each other, Jesus hasn't given up on us either. And so we become each other's reminder that he is hard at work adorning us and preparing us for heaven. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh Lord, thank you for these words that you give us. I pray that you would help us as we think through these things, as we seek to follow them. I pray that more and more you would show us what it looks like to be your people and that you would shape our desires to want what you want, to love what you love, and to hate what you hate. Give us this grace for each other, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.